airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3DE, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420, 3XY. Well, hi, and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. And today's guest started off running errands at 2UW in Sydney, learned his craft in a number of country radio stations before heading to Melbourne to the Greater 3UZ. He has been involved in many of this country's great sporting events and a few overseas as well. He is the master of MCs. He is, of course, Craig Willis. Craig Willis, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Now, Craig, for a number of years, you were the MC at many Anzac Day ceremonies, especially through the AFL. Now, no doubt these were extra special occasions for you, given both your parents' history in the military. Oh, very much so. Um, you know, and I think it's been very heartening in, in, in the last, well, some years now, of course, to see bigger crowds attending uh, the Anzac ceremonies um not only of course at the mcg which is a day within itself but also to be um uh, attending dawn services around the nation it's just been fabulous but yeah no, i'm very proud of not only my mum and dad but uh, my grandfather served in the first aif and some years ago um i went to france to Amiens, which is a a beautiful city or town just outside of paris which is near villiers bretonneur and my great uncle is buried in the adelaide cemetery which is just before you get into the village of Phileas Breton. Uh, and I'm the only member of the family ever to have been there. Um, as his brother, my grandfather, was repatriated back to the UK uh, with an injured foot. One of the, the shells that came out of the guns he was operating landed on his foot. 
Um, so uh, he'd never been back to France. And he'd also um, never been to visit his brother's grave. So uh, it was quite an emotional moment. And the most significant part of the world for Victorians as well. Craig, you are synonymous with Melbourne, but born in Sydney and a graduate of the rather exclusive King School in Sydney. Did you enjoy school and did you thrive at school? Terrible at school. All, it's, it's interesting that all I wanted to be was a, a wireless announcer back in those days. Um, but, yeah, no, I, um, I had some years at uh, the King School Parramatta. Um, it was interesting. I, one of the blokes I was at school with is now the King of Thailand. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for the, my um, the King and I moment. I'm waiting for him to call me, say, "Come over." <laughs> um, but no, at school, really, I wasn't uh, very scholastic. I was, I've always been an avid reader, so English was always uh, a topic I was good at. Sensationally hopeless at mathematics, which, as you'd remember too, when you had to do your timeouts to the news, you had to add up uh, how long the record went. Add six seconds for the uh, the time uh, signal. Um, and then the news theme. So I learned very quickly how to do that. That was the best I was ever at mathematics. But uh, now school was a bit of a mystery to me. And um, I, I made a lot of very, very good friends. Another bloke I went to school with was uh, Ivor Davies, lead singer of Ice House. Um, and one of Australia's leading barristers, Brett Walker. So um, I was amongst an alumni of brilliance and I was just the ordinary old plotter. But I've still done all right, I reckon. Indeed you have, and I suppose Mrs Big, your music teacher, would agree as well. She obviously dealt with students with a rather diverse range of musical skills, from the uh, very talented, as you mentioned, Ivor Davies, to that wannabe who played the drums in her school band. Oh, you've, you've been doing a lot of work. Margaret Biggs was the uh, an inspirational music teacher at, uh, at school. Uh, Ivor Davies played every instrument in the band except the drums. Now, that was a uh, something that... I, I was no Phil Collins, I was no... Ginger Baker. I was no Gene Krupa, I can assure you. So from school to the wonderful world of advertising, how did that first job come about? Well, I was actually offered a cadetship with Repco. A friend of mine who I saw in Sydney recently, Bruce Roper, um, uh, was a year ahead of me at another school and he loved cars and I quite enjoyed cars. You know, I had my first car was a 1963 Volkswagen and he said, you should apply for one of these um, cadetships with Repco. And there was only six on offer around Australia. So I did apply for it and I was actually given one. And my father, who spent 51 years working for Parramatta City Council in, in the end becoming the town clerk or what you call the chief executive officer, was delighted. Repco was a reputable Australian company, et cetera, et cetera. But my mother saw an advertisement for dispatch boys at George Patterson's advertising agency. So she said, um, why don't you try for that? And I did, and I got that job and uh, had to tell my father that I wasn't going to work at Repco. I was going to work for an advertising agency, which he would have thought was a bunch of fly-by-night um, red wine-drinking snobs. And that's when I went and started there. And I recently in Sydney, I took the photo outside 252 George Street, which was the uh, George Pats building. Now, you started off there with a couple of young bucks who were destined to make their mark in both the radio and entertainment industries. That's right, Hans Torv, um, and I started, and Les Gock from, um, from Hush, who went on to become, of course, one of Australia's great jingle writers and musical producers. And Hans, of course, and I went behind the microphone. So did you and Hans ever talk radio while working at Patterson's? No, not really. I think we both realised it was, could have been a stepping stone to what we wanted to do eventually, but 
This is back in the days when we had tape and we used to deliver uh, commercials that had been made by Pats to the radio stations. Um, so 2SM was at 257 Clarence Street. 2UE was Miller Street, North Sydney. 2CH was 47 York Street. 2UW was 365 Kent Street. Um, so we would be given a, 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 a bag of tapes and each in an envelope was 2SM or 2UW. Or, and when we were there, we often got to know the receptionist or the person receiving. We'd say, oh, can we have a quick look at the studio? And they take you up and you stand outside the studio watching whoever was on air in operation. So your first introduction to radio came via 2UW. What the have you doing there? Well, I was the, an office boy, um, a, a black who's become a dear friend over the last 40-plus years. Roger Summerall was the operations manager. And I was there one day and he said, we're looking for an office boy. But it, in fact, he reminds me, I was actually their first cadet, as they called it. And in the newsroom was Mike Tancred, who was the cadet journalist. Um, but on air at the time was, um, well, Stuart Jay was doing breakfast, then replaced by Malcolm T. Elliott. John Laws was doing the morning show. Phil Hunter in the afternoon. Sam Gallier was doing Drive. Chris Kearns, God rest his soul, who died not that long ago. Um, yeah, um, so it was like the number, there's the 1110 den, as they called it. And they had a, a slogan, I think it was, even Granny tunes her trainee to the new 2UW. And then they offered me a job there, and I stayed for a while, and I was doing sort of little demo tapes. Um, and I'd give them to John Laws, who was Mr. Laws, and um, he would critique them uh, in a nice way. And then um, I ended up uh, sending a tape off to 2LT Lithgow and uh, started my radio on-air career there. Hmm. Now, Craig, you say you started off at 2LT in Lithgow, but I've looked through the roster at the time and it doesn't feature your name at all. But a guy called Rick O'Neill does feature prominently. What can you tell us about that? Well, it was owned by Digger May at the time and Craig Denyer, Grant's dad, was on air at 2LT and they wouldn't allow people with the same name so they wouldn't have two Craigs. And I have a great friend of mine, David Neal, who's always been known as Rick, I said, Rick Neal sounds good on the wireless. And they said, oh, you can use that. And I said, no, I might use Rick O'Neill. So that's what it became, Rick O'Neill. Uh, we're doing my tenure there at 2LT, uh, which my mother wasn't all that pleased about, I can assure you. But I did two shifts there. We did two till four in the afternoon and then seven till 11 at night. And then closed the station down. Had to go downstairs, turn the transmitter off and do all that. But gee, it was a great grounding uh, in radio where you did everything, funeral announcements, power outages, live commercials, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, uh, it was quite an interesting experience. But yeah, there was uh, Grant Denyer's dad, Craig, uh, a guy called Gary Carr, uh, Daryl Egan. Um, just trying to remember a few more names from those days, but it's a bit of a distant memory now. That's, yeah, back to 1973. Spent time in Tamworth, Wagga and Canberra on your way back to Sydney. Tell us about your experiences at those country stations and how important were they in developing your all-round broadcasting ability? Oh, I think a lot of it has to do with um, the jobs that you're given and the shifts that you're given. Um, we used to do a Sunday night classical music program at 2TM. Uh, I just kept playing the same piece of classical music every Sunday night. Uh, which nobody ever noticed. Nobody ever rang up and said that's the same piece of classical music 
It could have been, you know, something by Bach or Strauss or something. Uh, I met John Minson, who was the, one of the legends of Australian radio in terms of country music, uh, a bit like Nick Irby, who I actually was at the same school as me um, and went on, of course, to become one of the, the great country music exponents of, uh, of radio. And um, Nick uh, was at 2CC when it opened when I was in Canberra at, uh, at 2CA. But, yeah, it was just the, the variety of shifts that you were asked to do, whether it be playing music, uh, hosting a current affairs type show, an interview type thing, uh, just basic grounding. But I spent three months on Christmas Island when I was in Canberra. I was a single bloke at the time, and um, they were looking for a broadcast officer on uh, what was VLU2, the smallest independently owned radio station run by the Australian government uh, on Christmas Island. So I spent four months there uh, working, uh, which was an interesting time. So you end up back at 2GB in Sydney. What were your duties there and who were some of the guys you were working with? Yeah, it was sort of like a floater, if you like. I worked in the newsroom uh, under Corbett Shaw. Lee Hatcher was in the newsroom in those days. Lee and I grew up together in uh, Eastwood in Sydney. Uh, But on air was Mike Carlton, uh, Mike Gibson, Dieter Cobb, uh, Jimmy Hannon, John Pierce, who I listened to as a young man, a young, well, almost a young child listening, and I ended up working with John. We called the cricket together, working uh, on the World Series Cup when it came into being uh, under Kerry Packer. Bill Dowsett was another name on air there. And then um, I did all sorts of shifts. And then I did the racing, though, on Saturdays. Uh, but I used to work Friday afternoon from 4 o'clock till midnight, um, we did a sports show with Bill Casey, who was the sports editor of the Herald's or the sorry, the Sydney Sun. Then John Tapp would be calling the races, the, the trots from Harold Park, the harness racing, and he'd take calls in between the races. And then I'd be back at eight o'clock Saturday morning working with Bob Charlie, um, Ken Callender, three way turf talk, um, with Burke Bryant, of course, at three years Ed and Vince Curry in Brisbane. And then I'd coordinate the races till 6 p.m. Saturday. So that was two days' work which was a heck of a lot of work uh, coordinating the races, and it was a very long couple of shifts. Now, at the time you were at 2GB, another guy called Sean Cosgrove was cutting his teeth at 3UZ in Melbourne. How did you two connect, and how did you end up at the Greater? Yeah, well, Sean and I had... Uh, Sean was coordinating uh, three-way turf talk down in Melbourne with uh, Bert Bryant. And I was doing it in Sydney and um, we got chatting, I think, down the line one day. And he said, look, there's a job coming up here. Would you be interested? I said, oh, yeah, because in those days, 3UZ was, you know, a big major radio station to work at. And um, I had a, a phone conversation with Bill Gates, who was the program director at the time. Bob Cornish was the general manager. And so they enticed me down to Melbourne. But I started doing three midnight to dawn shifts, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, I then did a breakfast show on Saturday and then Sunday night with Father Gerard Dowling, who actually officiated at my wedding. A lovely man, beautiful man. Um, And then again, I did various shifts filling in, worked with uh, Martha Gardner. But of course, at the time you had um, Tony Barber was the breakfast announcer, Bert Newton, of course. Uh, did the morning show, Martha Gardner in the afternoons. Uh, Peter James, his son Darren is a great friend, and Peter was a great friend. Uh, Ugly Dave Gray, 
Uh, but there were uh, announcers of um, the calibre of George Danes, Sean, of course, Peter Byrne, John Deeks did a lot of work on 3UZ. So uh, that was in the old Burke Street building. And then they moved to the new studios up in Carlton, not where they are now, because uh, it was owned by Oliver J. Nielsen, proprietary limited. And I was one of the first to broadcast from the new studios. The thing about 3UZ, which was interesting, they built all their own equipment. So all the desks that were used were designed specifically for racing because it was the racing station. And then came the bombshell that they were dropping racing uh, because they were sick of the TAB telling them what they could broadcast, basically. That was a huge decision to make. Okay, Craig, given that the statute of limitations has well passed, what can you tell us about a combination of Peter Donegan, Steve Murphy, Sean Cosgrove, Craig Willis, and the Parker Street Hilton in Ormond? Jeez, oh, you have done your work. Well, the, the boys were sharing a house. In fact, it was Pete Donegan and Sean had the house in uh, Parker Street, and they invited me to come and live there, which was great because, you know, we all got on very, and we still get on very well to this day. And uh, then Steve Murphy was a very young announcer who came down from, um, I think, Toowoomba, which was um, Sean's hometown. So the four of us were there. We had a few parties in the time. But the thing was, we're all working different shifts. Like Pete Donegan was actually calling Greyhounds. So he was out most nights. Um, Sean was doing, I think, afternoons at the time. Um, and then I started Drive, a sports show called Sports Talk, with Kevin Bartlett, the Richmond legend, who uh, at the time was still playing footy. Um, but it started with Leon Weirgard and uh, Ian Cleveland. So they all did a couple of days a week, different days. And then Kevin Bartlett was signed up by three years dead to do the sports show between four and seven uh, each day, Monday to Friday. So when do you think you moved out of the disc jockey phase to uh, find your niche in sport? It's, it's hard to tell, actually, um, what triggered that. But I have been doing a lot of sport voiceovers, um, which sort of led to me going to, to 3AW in the end uh, to be Darren Hinch's announcer, which I was for nearly six years. Um, and then when Darren went to Channel 7 to do Hinch, um, I thought, well, I'm out of a job here. But then they offered me a sports show between six and eight at night because I'd always had a bit to do with sport over the years. And, um, and that show still exists today, hosted by uh, Jared Healy, of course. Uh, yeah, it sort of went on from there, I suppose. Uh, but I used to work with Harry Beitzel, uh, through, uh, not calling the footy, but working on the football, um, calling the cricket um, on 3AW when they had the commercial rights to it. Uh, so it sort of came, went from there. So as you said, a six-year association with 3AW and the human headline, Darren Hinch, one of the most outspoken journalists that this country has seen. What was it really like working with Darren? Oh, terrific. We didn't know each other. I started with him uh, in the late January, uh, I think it was 83, and didn't really know him. And we just got on. We worked together. We never had a bad word, uh, never had an argument uh, in all that time. Uh, he's a very decent bloke and he, he's a very committed person to, to what he believes in um, and controversial, sure. But at the time, he was like the king of radio uh, in Melbourne. And um, as I said, we, we just got on terribly well together. I do remember when I first started with him, his uh, birthday is in February. So I'd only been with him a couple of weeks. It was his 40th birthday. He had a massive party at the underground nightclub and it was black tie and everything else. And uh, he was with Jackie Weaver at the time. And 
I had a reasonably abstemious night and turned up for work at 7.30 the next morning and we're on air at 8.30. And uh, there was Hinch still sitting in his dinner suit at his desk and I thought, oh, this is good. Anyway, he was a bit um, hungover. Well, he was very hungover. But he went through the show at 8.30 without, you wouldn't have known. And a midday said, come on, we're off to lunch at the Flower Trump. So we trooped off there. <laughs> Now, we know with Darren there were times when he pushed the boundary to the max and a few where he definitely overstepped it. Was there ever a time when you sat back looking at things and thought, hmm, he's just taking this a little bit too far? Well, not really. I mean, I was just there as the announcer. Uh, my job was to tell the time, read the commercials, read the weather, etc. But, yeah, there are probably a few areas where we, we may have disagreed, but I learned very quickly it's his show and it's his opinion. Uh, we might discuss it off air where I might say, oh, gee, but he would give you a very good reason as to why he'd done something. But no, I never really thought about that, to be honest. I was just there doing the job, which I enjoyed thoroughly. You were, of course, closely working with him during the famous court case and his subsequent incarceration. How difficult a period was that for all concerned? Well, you see a friend, and that's you know what Darren is and always has been and will be, um, standing up for something they believe in, maybe perhaps not the best judgment at the time. But um, going to jail is a fairly significant part of anyone's life, as you can imagine. Uh, and the publicity around it was, um, you can imagine, was unbelievable. But he he broke the law and um, he had a lot of support and a lot of friends and he was in a, in a prison farm, but he was locked up with some fairly nasty characters initially. Um, but, yeah, no, it was a fairly upsetting time. And, of course, he was off air for that period, um, and uh, we all gathered down in a pub in South Melbourne and um, sort of did a video uh, with somebody professionally produced to play to him in, in jail that we were there to support him. But, um, yeah, it was a fairly traumatic time. Now, in July 1992, you went solo for breakfast on 3EE The Breeze, a station that initially had a three-year strategy to grow the audience, but in reality barely lasted two. What were the promises made... And what was the reality? AWA Media, which was a very respected organisation, they'd been the licence holders of 2CH in Sydney. And, of course, you know, AWA, as you and I would have known when we were growing up, was one of the names in uh, in producing radios that we listened to. Um, and they made these offers of uh, jobs to myself and a few others uh, to start this new show uh, on breakfast at 3EE. Uh, they called it The Breeze. And it was to be like a, a sort of accommodation of easy listening and informative uh, type segments. And the, the concept of it was pretty good, but the actual uh, putting it into practice was very, it was a shambles. Uh, it was run out of Sydney, again, by people who did not understand the Melbourne market, as we still see in radio today. It had a lot of potential, but there was no budget. The, the program manager was a lovely man. I'm still great friends with him, Johnny Grimm. They brought him down from Sydney. He was buying CDs out of his own pocket because they had no budget for music CDs and things like that. It was just, and they built this studio that was all secondhand equipment, which surprised me for AWA. And I think we realised very quickly the idea was they were setting it up, they got the licence, they built the new transmitter, the whole idea was they were going to sell it, which they eventually did. Now, Craig, around Australia, you've been known as the voice of, well, almost anything and the consummate master of ceremonies. Did you ever MC a gig where you thought, well, bugger this, I'm just giving up, they're not listening? 
No, because I'd never allow them to. <laughs> I'll give you a classic example. It was Gary Ablett, Jr.'s um, final best and fairest before he left to go to the Gold Coast Suns. Were at Crown, there would have been 1,100 Geelong faithful there. And I was out the back and he came up and he was very nervous. And he said, they're going to boo me because I'm leaving. I said, mate, they won't boo you because I won't let them. And he was the last player to come out when I introduced all the team. They came out from the stage and then walked down the middle of the room. And I was to have a chat with him. And he was shaking like a leaf. And I just, at the, uh, the last player came out. And then I said, please welcome Gary Ablett. And they started applauding. And I thought, yeah, we're going well here. And he came out and he stood next to me and I held his hand. And we talked about his love of the club and the fact that he'd made a decision and he got a standing ovation. And later he thanked me very profusely by saying, uh, you were right. And I said, I told you, I wasn't going to let him boo you. <laughs> no way, none. But not really. I think, look, the trick to all that sort of stuff is the more prepared you are, the less can go wrong. And that's the way I've always looked at things. So what's been the most memorable gig you've ever seen? Paris, the International Tennis Federation Tennis Awards held during the French Open. And they invited me to come to Paris to host the awards night in this beautiful room at the back of the Louis Vuitton building. And we had uh, the world number one at the time was Serena Williams, who surprisingly I've always got on very well with. And she came up on stage and gave me a kiss. Uh, Federer was world number one in the men's, so he came up and gave me a hug. And I'm thinking, gee, this is pretty good. Um, yeah, that was probably one of the most beautiful events I've ever hosted. And it was a real privilege to do something like that, especially when you're doing it in Paris. You know, like there's a boy from Eastwood in Sydney, and all of a sudden I'm standing in this magnificent building uh, with the creme de la creme of the tennis world. Speaking of tennis, which name, now not a player, which name was your favourite to introduce onto Rod Laver Arena? Oh, uh, good question. Oh, Federer, I would suggest to you, um, because, you know, the, you do the big build-up and the crowd just, you know, they, they're already clapping and I used to say, well, but wait, there's more. Um, yeah, I think I think Roger was always the one that you could, uh, no, try and do it. Roger Federer. That's what, he used to love it. He used to give me a word I had to get into the introduction that meant nothing. And the first time we did it, the word was limeria. What the hell does that mean? It's high German for it's like an excitement word that kids used to use. So he was the, um, the winner of the Limeria Open, which never existed. And then one year, um, Tony Godsick, his manager, came to me. He said, he's come up with a word and this will get you. The bloke who's doing his massage is from some town called Wan Foggy. I said, no, that's Wan Saggy. He said, that's the word you've got to get in. I went, oh, yeah. What? So I went away and sat down at the desk in the media room, and I went through it, and I thought, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. So when I'm doing his introduction for the next match, I said, um, you know, in 2016, he won here, he won there, he won Saggy. Hey, very creative. Now, in the introduction stakes, both Leighton Hewitt and Raphael didn't do too badly either. Uh, very true. Uh, I'd introduced Leighton a lot, not only at the Australian Open, but at, uh, at Davis Cup uh, over the years, and uh, Raphael Nadal was... What a, and what a lovely bloke. They're all, they're all good fellas. Um, pleasure to deal with. Uh, even Djokovic, who's quite different. Um, 
Uh, he's a good bloke. I, uh, I just think what happened during the Australian Open in January was a shambles. Not necessarily his fault, but um, uh, he's a good fellow. He does a very good impersonation. You know, he does impersonations of players. He does a very good impersonation of me, which he did. Um, yeah, where were we? Dubai at a tournament there. He's taking the mickey out of me, which is, I think, is a great honour. You know. Now, Craig, anyone who's worked in the bunkers of Melbourne Park at the Australian Open knows the golden rule. No autographs, no photos. Therefore, I can only assume that Roger asked you to be photographed with him as he exited the court after one of his Australian Open victories. No, I can't discuss that. You know that. <laughs> no, um, I, I was very lucky that I had a, 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 goodie, a, a very good photographer, Johnny Toscano, uh, who would get a photo of me with, um, with the champion each year with the trophy, just off centre court. So we used to do that for most years, and I don't put them on the wall. There's just great memories to have, you know, the men's and women's champion, the Australian Open, my photo with the, with them and the trophy, and I would have loved to have had one with Ash Barty because she's a terrific girl. But, you know, Roger and I, oh, we're, just, we're just besties. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> Finally, Craig, nothing seemed to phase Darren in the day when he was on air, but a studio visit from Britt Eklund had both you and he not knowing basically where to look. <laughs> you have done your work. She had this exercise. I think it was a video in those days, and she's doing the stretches on the floor, and we're sitting there going, hang on, that's Britt Eklund. <laughs> she's serious? It's interesting. Her name came up in a quiz uh, my partner Donna and I were doing the other day. It was named the actress that was married to Peter Sellers. And of course, that was Britt Eklund. Um, but, yeah, no, she came into the show. When I worked with Darren, I met... You know, because he was the you know the big gun in town. All the stars that came to Melbourne came to be interviewed on the Darren Hinch show. Um, so there was Peter Cook uh, from um, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Who, he was editor of uh, was it Punch Magazine or um, I can't remember now. He was he was a sad figure at the time. He was drinking vodka in the studio. Sophia Loren, uh, Prunella Scales, Sybil Faulty. Uh, but the one that I uh, was uh, in awe of, and I know it's going to be one of your questions, was Chuck Yeager, the man who broke the speed of sound and um, still to this day is um, my favourite movie is The Right Stuff, which is part of Yeager's life. But um, Darren used to get books to read before he interviewed them and he'd often give me the book because I did a lot of reading and I do up a list of questions for him on the book. And Chuck Yeager's book was there, and Chuck Yeager signed it and said, Keep flying, Craig. All the best, Chuck Yeager. <laughs> and that's one of my most treasured possessions.
Okay, Craig, a dozen of our standard questions that we ask all our guests. First one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Camaray Public Golf Course in Sydney with a couple of mates. Barman told us when we'd finished playing nine holes. Can you recall the last concert ticket you paid for? Can't remember, but I've just bought tickets with my partner for Ed Sheeran when he comes out next year. Is there a concert act that you regret never seeing? I interviewed Harry Chapin in the back of a car going out to Channel 10 when I was in Sydney at 2GB. Loved Harry Chapin's music. Thought, no, I won't go to this concert. He'll be back. Not Only a few months later, he was killed in a car accident in New York. And I regret that to this day. Is there a word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Trying to think of that one, but um, uh, I can't think of one. To be quite honest, again, prepared, never had a problem. Craig, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking that you just might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Uh, I think I did say bloody on air once by mistake and working for a station where they banned the word hell from the Kevin Johnson song, What the Hell Would He Know? I thought that was the end of my career, but no, I don't think anyone was listening. Skyhawks or Sherbert? Sherbert, because I love Daryl Braithwaite. He's a great fellow and I have a lot to do with him at the Cox Plate when he sings horses to the crowd. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Beatles. Your most treasured piece of memorabilia from your radio days? Uh, probably the big on-air sign I filched from a radio station when I left. Uh, I still haven't had it connected, but my electrician mate up here at the farm is going to come and do it one day. So it's one of those big old rectangular white background red on-air signs. Can you recall the biggest story that broke while you were on-air? I was thinking about that. I think probably the Ronald Reagan attempted assassination. Uh, but I think also I happened to be on air uh, when Princess Di was at first injured in a car accident in Paris, then, of course, sadly passed away. And I do remember that. Craig, the moment that someone, I think I know the answer to this one, walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck. Chuck Yeager. Best words of advice from a program manager. Have you ever thought about getting a job with the Commonwealth Bank? <laughs> no, I think I think what I think the best advice I ever got was never lie to your audience. Finally, Craig, can you think of two albums that you would consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years? Gee, that's a good one. T for the Tiller Man, Cat Stevens, uh, and Rumble in the Jungle, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Hey, some nice choices. Craig, you've been a major part of the sporting landscape here in Australia, but also someone who's had a broad and very successful career in radio. Thanks for your time, thanks for your stories, and thanks for being part of Pilots of the Airwaves. Absolute pleasure. I was, uh, saw that uh, Tim Webster has been a guest on Pilots of the Airwaves, and he said he had a fabulous time. So, mate, any time. Been a pleasure. The voice, Craig Willis on Pilots of the Airwaves. Oh, yeah.